warm welcome to, welcome to everyone in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is wonderful to gather together and to hear from the, from the Lord through His Word. Our hope and prayer as pastors here is that you would know Christ and make Him known. That's our mission statement at CBC. And that's, that's the overall goal of our Sunday morning gathering, that you would know Christ, that Christ would be precious to you, that your whole life would be oriented towards Him, and that you would seek to make Him known to others. That the same treasure you have found in Christ, you lead others to know and follow. God bless you all. This morning, we're continuing in our study in Philippians. And a brief story to begin this morning. Whenever I was in college, my major was Christian leadership. I've referenced this before. I really enjoyed the Christian part, not so much the leadership part. And the reason why is because so many of the classes and books I had to read with reference to leadership... They were built upon methods and how-tos and, and, and how, how do you go about leading. And so often I was left just itch, scratching my head saying, there's got to be more to leadership than this. And I didn't know exactly what it was that I was missing. What is it that I'm looking for? I didn't know. I, I, I knew that I didn't like these books and I knew I didn't like what it is that they were teaching, but I didn't know why. And then I read a book by a gentleman by the name of Albert Moeller. And Albert Moeller, he wrote this book called The Conviction to Lead. And in this book, what he talks about is that normal leadership classes and books, what they oftentimes miss is this notion of conviction. They, too emph they emphasize too much methods and how-tos, and they're light on convictions. And listen to what he said. This really revolutionized my way of thinking about leadership. This is what he said. When a leader walks into the room, a passion for the truth had better enter with him. Authentic leadership does not emerge out of a vacuum. The leadership that matters most is convictional, deeply convictional. This quality of leadership springs from those foundational beliefs that shape who we are and establish our beliefs about everything else. Convictions are not merely beliefs we hold. They are those beliefs that hold on to us. We would not know who we are but for these bedrock beliefs. And without them, we would not know how to lead. What he's saying is that the foundation of leadership, the basic pillar that leadership principles and how-tos and methods should be built upon is this notion of conviction. What do you believe? What's in your heart? That's the question that he's pressing upon us with reference to leadership. What is in your heart? What do you bleed? Whenever times get tough, what do you really believe? What do you, re what do you really hold on to during those difficult times? And this notion of conviction is central, not just to leadership, but to everything that we do, to the Christian life. For the teenager who's being peer pressured to do something wrong, conviction matters for the mother who has a wayward child who keeps praying and yet sees no sees no results conviction matters for the farmer whose crop does not yield what it used to or what it ought to conviction matters for the elderly person who has some type of terminal illness conviction greatly matters it greatly matters what's in our hearts what do we believe what are those ideas and beliefs that hold us? These are central to life, central to, central to the Christian walk. 
All of life is a demonstration of our convictions. And this morning, we'll be exploring this notion of convictions. I've titled this morning's sermon, Bedrock Convictions. And what we're going to see in Philippians is Paul's convictions. And what I want to do is use Paul's convictions as a model for our own convictions. Go ahead and open up with me to Philippians 1. Philippians 1, verse 19. Paul had deep convictions. You cannot be an important and influential person unless you have convictions. They can either be bad or good convictions, but you have to have convictions for your life to matter in this life. And Paul had deep convictions, and he was in prison. And in this context of prison and difficulty, his convictions are coming out. Philippians 1, 19. We'll read through verse 20. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. death. Convictions matter. Paul had convictions. Three convictions for you this morning from Paul. The, ver- the first conviction comes from verse 19, and that's hope. Hope. Now, hope, hope is not fanciful thinking. It's not just wishing that something happens. In our culture, this notion of hope shows up in this statement. Well, everything happens for a reason. Have you heard this? Many people say this. You know, something goes wrong, and someone will say, well, you know, I know that everything happens for a reason. And embedded in that idea of everything happening for a reason is the idea of hope. Hope is a very appealing conviction. We all want it. It's something that we all want to hold on to, that no matter how hard life gets, that we still have hope. And the secularism, this finding hope in some general vague notion of of a reason for why bad things happen, is, is hollow. It's like that statement that I mentioned in a previous sermon with reference to a Nike ad with Colin Kaepernick. Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. There's some truth to that, but it's hollow. It's empty. It matters how we define this notion of something. And the reason for why bad things happen, you can't just say, well, it happens for some reason. You have to define it. And you have to believe a certain way about this reason. So even within our secular culture, there's this notion of hope. But the Bible defines hope very differently than just, well, I know things happen for a reason. The Bible's definition of hope is built upon Jesus Christ. Specifically, that the tomb is empty. Amen? We gather to proclaim that Jesus Christ, historically and really, lived in this world, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. That Jesus is not dead. That Jesus is alive. And what he has said to us in Scripture is true. That is Christian hope. That is is the definition of what hope is. It's not some general vague feeling, some fanciful, wishful thinking. It's concrete. It's sure. It's built on something 
that actually happened. So that's what hope is. And what we see Paul hoping for in verse 19, Paul has a hope. Paul is in prison. Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. But Paul has hope. Paul knows, verse 19, this hope for Paul is a certain type of knowledge. It's not just some, well, I really hope this happens. It's a firm knowledge. And that knowledge is that through your prayers and the help of the, of Jesus, excuse me, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, his imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. Paul has hope. And his hope is mentioned in verse 19. So let's break this down. First, we have to deal with this notion of deliverance. Some of your translations might say salvation. Some of your translations say, this will turn out for my salvation. This word, it's, it, it can go either ways. Either it's referring to Paul's deliverance from prison, that Paul believes that through the love of others and the grace of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he will be released from prison. Or, the way I take it, is that Paul is saying, ultimately, he will be redeemed. That regardless of what happens in his ministry, regardless of what happens in his life, that Paul knows that he will be saved. That Jesus Christ will be faithful to his word. And that's the way I take it. I take it that what Paul is so assured of in verse 19 is his salvation. You can be assured of your salvation. Paul has this assurance. He has this hope that regardless of what's happening to him now, regardless of his current circumstances, that that will not always be the circumstances which consume his life. And this ultimate salvation comes through prayers specifically your prayers, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. This is a very interesting phrase. And in Greek, what the Greek indicates is these two ideas of praying and the help and supply of the Holy Spirit are tightly linked. And I take it to mean this, that the supply or help of the Spirit is the answer to the Philippians' prayers. The Philippians have partnered with Paul, and one way they partner with him is through prayer. These Philippians are praying for Paul. And the answer to that prayer is this idea of the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Although Christians are filled with the Spirit, although Christians are supplied with the Spirit, the Bible also teaches that we can be filled with more of the Spirit, and we can be supplied with more of Him in our time of need. So Paul is not saying that he is not filled by the Spirit. What he's saying here is that through the prayers of the Philippians, the Spirit will help him more. And this reflects the theological idea of that grace comes when we need it. Whenever we're in trials or in difficulties, God pours his grace upon us more. And then in verse 20, Paul has this little phrase, as is my eager expectation and hope. What I take what Paul is saying here is Paul's conceptually linking the beginning of verse 20 with verse 19. That verse 19 is this hope. And the hope 
is that regardless of what happens to Paul, regardless of the difficulty that he has to go through, that Christ will be faithful. And the guy is in prison. The guy is in prison for preaching the gospel. As I've said, he's not drinking pina coladas and sunbathing on the shores of Greece. The guy's in prison, and this is a first century prison. They don't get meals and medicine and television. This is truly an awful situation. But even in that, Paul has hope. Paul has hope. And what this means for us is this. Regardless of how life is, regardless of the difficulty, regardless of how dark the clouds are right now, we have hope. We have hope. And that hope is not built upon some general vague idea of, well, everything's going to work out. It's built upon the grace of Jesus Christ. The reason why we exist as a church is to proclaim Him. And He is the reason for why you exist. Your life, in your life, you have to have this hope, this bedrock hope that regardless of what I'm going through, Paul said regardless of the prison, regardless of the current circumstances, he can see beyond that. He can see the empty tomb. And he can see the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's the application for us. That no matter what is going on in our lives, we have hope as Christians. Now, if you're not a Christian, you don't have hope. Hope is a unique possession of Christians. And the reason why is because we believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. So my encouragement to the Christian, that regardless of what you're going through, hold on to hope. See Paul's example. That even in a prison, that he has hope and he can hold on to that hope. And even in your trial, you can know that through the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of others, that your circumstances will turn out for your salvation. Second conviction that we see with Paul is peace. Write that down, peace. First is hope. Second is peace. When I was in seminary, one of the great privileges I had was that there was a local gym that was a very lucrative and nice gym. They had showers. And the gym was massive. A lot of rich people went there. And as a poor seminary student... One of the policies that this gym had was that we got to go there for $75 every six months. Can't beat that, right? And Kath and I, we would go to, go to this gym all the time. And in this gym, around the time of Valentine's Day, they had a little advertisement. I guess not an advertisement. They had a little slogan to encourage you as you're going into working out. And the slogan said that you have to love yourself. You have to love yourself. I've always been puzzled by that, that phrase, that statement. You have to love yourself. And, the, and the, the, the logic behind it, I think, is this. As you're going into the gym, you know, you might be discouraged about your image. I'm a little fat. I need to lose a little weight. And what the gym wants to encourage you to do is to accept yourself. It's okay. It's okay where you're at. You have to have a positive self-image. You have to be okay with yourself. I think that's the idea. You have to accept yourself. You have to love yourself. 
And this idea is basically that you have to have peace with yourself. It's kind of like self-esteem. It's kind of, it's, it, I think one, we could call it self-love or self-peace. That regardless of where you're at in life, you accept yourself. Now that type of thinking is not found in the Bible. Oftentimes the Bible calls us to not focus upon ourselves, but to focus on, upon Christ and others. Ultimately what we're after is not self-love, not self-acceptance, not self-peace. What we're after is to have peace with God. It's not our opinions about ourselves that matter. It's what God thinks. We have to have peace, not with ourselves, but with God. And once we have peace with God, we end up having peace with ourselves. But there's a priority there. And this little statement, you have to love yourself, gets it wrong. So peace is not that. Peace, rather, is having peace with God. God accepting you and God approving of you. And Paul has peace. Verse 20. Paul says, I will not at all be ashamed. Now, if you turned not being ashamed into a positive statement, it's Paul has peace. Paul says that in every circumstance, I will have peace. Now, what is that peace? What does it mean to be unashamed? Oftentimes, whenever we think about being shamed, we think about people making fun of us or saying negative things to us that makes us feel badly. And I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Paul's mindset is not focused on other people. Paul's ultimate mindset is focused upon God. The main question that Paul seeks to answer in his life is what does God think of me? Not what do people, but what does God think of me? Does God approve of me? If God approves of me, it doesn't matter what people think. That's what Paul's saying. And to understand this idea, go to Deuter excuse me, Daniel 12. Daniel 12. That is page 750 in your black chair Bible. So what does Paul mean whenever he says, I, am, I will not be ashamed in anything? Daniel 12, verses 1 through 2. Here Daniel is talking about the end of time. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book of life. And then look how verse 2 describes eternal salvation and eternal damnation. And many of those who sleep in the dust, this is talking about the future bodily resurrection. At the end of time, all people will rise from the dead and have a body. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. Some to everlasting life. This is those people who are saved. This is Christians. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. Notice here how the author, Daniel, is speaking of ultimate damnation. Ultimate damnation is referred to with this idea of shame. Those who rise again, who are condemned by God, will be shamed. Now with that in mind, 
Go back to Philippians 1. Paul says, I will not at all, excuse me, I will not be at all ashamed. What Paul is talking about, it is, is talking about this redemption that's coming. He's talking about this salvation in verse 19 that he referenced. That there's coming a time when he will stand before God. And when that happens, he knows he has the peace that he will not be put to shame. That he will not be condemned. That he will be saved. Paul has this peace. That's the idea. Paul's looking towards the future. You notice the tense of the verb. I will not, I will not be at all ashamed. This is future headed. This is future looking. Paul's talking about the coming of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes, Paul will not be shamed. He will not be condemned. He will not be judged. He will be saved. Peace here is a current understanding in our conscience with reference to a future event. Peace here is future, but there's a current manifestation of that. And what this indicates is something that I've hit on in a previous sermon. Is this notion of conscience. As a preacher, one of my jobs is to agitate your conscience. I don't apologize for that. That's why you pay me. To agitate your conscience. And there's a coming time of judgment. And what Paul's example teaches us is that we have to have peace with God. Not some self-love or self-acceptance. But that we have to make sure that God approves of us. And the way you know whether God will approve of you is where your conscience is at. Does God approve of your actions, your thoughts, and your deeds? Does your conscience speak peacefully to you? Or does it accuse you? Those are very important questions. One of my professors in seminary said this, the softest pillow at night is a clean conscience. Amen? And the application, what I want you to do is I want you to listen to Paul. Listen to what Paul says in Acts 24, 16. He's speaking to the Roman authorities. Paul says this, Acts, if you want to write this down, Acts 24, 16. We're not going to turn there. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. If you do not have a clean conscience, if you do not have peace with God, if your conscience accuses you, you need to change that. You need to address that. The conscience is a small voice and it nags us. Do not avoid that nagging and rather take pains to have this clear conscience. Whenever you work out, you go and exercise, the way you know whether you're getting a good exercise if your body starts to hurt. It becomes painful. And that's how we should pursue having a clean conscience. 
that we're introspective and that we take pains that this is something that we exert considerable energy on. Am I right with God? Am I right with man? We have to take pains in pursuing peace with God in our conscience. God wants us to do this with our conscience. We are to exert ourselves so greatly in seeking to have a clean, a clean conscience that it hurts. That's what God wants. Last conviction. So we have hope, we have peace, and now we have faithfulness. Hope, peace, and faithfulness. Fruits of the Spirit. Hope, peace, and faithfulness. Now faithfulness is not fair-weather Christianity. Faithfulness is not loving Christians when they're nice to you. Faithfulness is not just being obedient when things are easy. Fair-weather Christianity is not Christianity. Faithfulness is obeying even if it hurts, even if it demands something of you. Faithfulness is obeying when things are tough. Faithfulness might mean sacrificing comforts and pleasures so that you can obey. Sacrificing approval so that God might approve of you. Look at Paul, Philippians 1.20. But that with full courage, this is the second part of verse 20. But with that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. The main idea here is this notion of will be honored, Christ will be honored in my body. And what Paul is saying is that regardless of what the future holds, Paul's in prison. He might die, he might live. Paul is making this confession, though, that regardless of what happens, Christ will be honored in my body whether they destroy my body or my body is preserved, that Christ will be honored. And that is the call of every Christian, of every person, that we would honor God. And Paul has this confession, this commitment, that regardless of what happens, Christ will be honored. Right at the end of verse 20, you have this phrase, whether by life or death, I've already mentioned this, Paul could die, Paul could live. Ultimately, Paul does meet his death. His head is chopped off by Nero. So this is a very true confession to Paul for, for Paul. And then look, Paul mentions this with full courage. This honoring of Christ in his body occurs with full courage. Paul isn't going to go out groveling before people. He is going to proclaim Christ, regardless of the cost. He's not going to whimper and hide. He's going to go, he's going to die fighting for the gospel. And then look, as always, now as always, Paul has always done this. Since his conversion, he has been faithful to Christ. And he's going to do it now in prison, as he always has done. Circumstances do not impact his obedience. Regardless of what life has, Paul is going to be faithful. This is a radical confession given the circumstances and the potential for what is coming in Paul's life. 
Paul is committed to honoring Christ regardless of what happens. Where are these types of Christians in this world? Where are these Christians that can say and do say that regardless of what life has for me, regardless of what my circumstances are, I am going to honor Christ. Far too many of us are fair-weather Christians. Easy come, easy go type thing. I'm going to obey Christ when food is on the table, when my wife is healthy, when my kids are popular. We have to repent of that. We have to have this conviction that I'm going to honor Christ regardless of what happens. And I want you to see, it's almost like the prison made Paul more stubborn in his faithfulness. Right? What he doesn't say is, whoa, whoa, is me. I'm in this prison. Or God, where are you? He doesn't say that. And so often, that's our response to difficult circumstances. All right, Lord, get me out of this. Now, Paul does not want to be in prison. We're going to explore that in the next couple of sermons. But he does not self-pity. And he sees the prison as the chamber in which God is refining him. And the circumstances are making him more stubborn in his faithfulness. And what we need in this life is a bit of stubbornness. When trials come. When people treat us wrongly. When your husband gets cancer. When your kid's sick. Rather than turning us from Christ, what we need is a bit of stubbornness. We need to say, Lord, regardless of what happens in my life, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to count my life as cheap. My life does not matter to me, Lord. What matters to me is that Christ is honored. Christianity is costly. It will cost you something. It could even cost you your very own life. Many Christians have died for their faith. And if we have that opportunity, that is what Christ calls us to. And to get through that, to get through the pain and the difficulty of life, we have to be stubborn in our faithfulness. Rather than circumstances leading us away from God, we need to see them as refining us and proving our faithfulness. And my prayer is that all of you can say this with Paul, that whether in life or death, I will be faithful. That's what we need. I love Christian history. I love reading stories of how ancient Christians were faithful and had convictions and that walked through very difficult times and yet maintained their confession. And this is one of my favorite stories. It's referred to as the martyrdom of Polycarp. This comes from the second century, the early 100s. Polycarp was an important figure, figure in the early church. He was ultimately martyred, as we will see. And he was an old man when he was martyred, but he was a disciple of John, the Apostle John. He knew the apostles. He knew them personally. And John discipled him. And we have one letter from Polycarp, and we have this account of his martyrdom. 
And in the account, there's a brief dialogue between the Roman authorities and Polycarp. And I want you to see Polycarp's example. And I want you to see his example as an example for you. This is the type of conviction and faithfulness that we need. This is what the Roman authorities say. Have respect for your age. Now remember, he's 86. He's an old man. Have respect for your age. Revile Christ and swear an oath to Caesar. I will release you. Polycarp's response. For 86 years, I have been his servant. And he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I will have you consumed by fire. You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly, and after just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. As Polycarp spoke these and many other words, he was inspired with courage and joy, and his face was filled with grace, so that not only did he not collapse in fright at the things that were said to him, but on the contrary, the Roman rulers were astonished. Polycarp then prays, O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, I bless you because you have considered me worthy of this day and hour so that I might receive a place among the number of the martyrs to the resurrection of eternal life in the Holy Spirit. I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and forevermore. Amen. That's that type of stubborn faithfulness that we need. That regardless of life, Regardless of death, it makes no difference. That our love for Christ is so real in our lives that this faithfulness, this conviction of faithfulness embeds itself in our hearts and that we can say with Paul, God, regardless of what life holds, I will be faithful to you. That's my hope for us. That's my hope for myself. That we can say that together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for Polycarp. We thank you for all the faithful Christians who consider their lives cheap and who are found faithful in martyrdom. And Father, in our context of religious liberty, it's different. Father, our trials and challenges are not as severe. But God, they are real. There's discouragement There's disapproval. There's our own sin. There's a lack of seeing answered prayer. Father, we need convictions. We need the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. We need hope. We need the belief that regardless of what happens to us now, we will be saved. That Christ will be true to His Word. We need peace. We need the awareness right now that our lives are right with you. And Father, we need this stubborn faithfulness. That regardless of what life brings our way, regardless of what happens, that we will say, Christ will be honored in my life. Father, apply these truths to our lives.
We are helpless in changing ourselves. Salvation is all of grace. I pray, Father, for the power of the Spirit to apply these convictions to our lives and to change us. For the glory of Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen.